0: You're listening to audio from The Village Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at thevillagechurch.net. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there's no place for him to sleep in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Ryan in the Ranger. This is the word of the Lord. I just love it. It's just great. It's just perfect. Hey, good morning. It's good to see you. If you have your Bibles, grab them. Uh, We're going to be in Isaiah 9. I know Wade alluded to that in the welcome, but that's where we're going to camp out. I don't want to make anyone panic here, uh, but in about 20 days, Uh, we're going to walk into this room or a room like it, by the grace of God, and here's how we'll do that here on Saturday. Uh, Our Christmas Eve services, even though Saturday is not Christmas Eve, uh, will be at 2, 4, and 6, and then we'll do our normal Sunday, which is Christmas Eve, at 9 and 11, Uh, and we will really, throughout all of those services, have um, birth through kindergarten except the Saturday night at 6. That will be just like a free-for-all in here, uh, and as you come in, you'll be given a candle uh, here or somewhere else, and, and then uh, I, we will kind of navigate the Christmas story, and then I'll take my candle, and I'll walk over, and I'll light it on that candle, and then I'll hand it out, and, and we'll start passing the fire all over uh, the room while we sing the song, Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm, all is bright. It's a Christmas tradition. In fact, uh, I would, I'd be kind of nervous at what my inbox would look like if we ended any other way but that. It's kind of, we're Protestants. It's what we do. We sing silent night, two candles, and then I get to watch you take pictures of the room with candles with your phone as we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's a good, right thing to sing that uh, because in one sense, it was true. Um, to uh, our human eyes as best that we can see that night so long ago uh, would have been very quiet. Uh, certainly by modern, sti- modern uh, times, painfully silent and, and it would have been quiet and calm in a way that would make most of us uncomfortable in 2023. And yet um, the Bible is going to teach us that actually going on behind all of that is something cataclysmic. Uh, that behind this little manger and this quiet night and this calm uh, kind of reality that there is this kind of cosmic war breaking loose in the heavenlies. That in that in that unseen realm where you, you and I can't see it, but we see in the scriptures that it's there. Uh, that the coming of Christ is something far more significant than just this sweet little baby. And I want to draw attention to that for a couple of reasons this morning. I want to draw attention to that. Uh, one, because it's an easy time of the year to sentimentalize Jesus, to make him sweet and cute, to quote Ricky Bobby, to make him six-pound, eight-ounce, sweet little baby Jesus. It's an easy time of the year to make him cute and kind and cuddly. And, and I don't think that the place that you and I get our peace from, and, and that regardless of life circumstances, we have the strength to walk in a great deal of peace, comes from six-pound, eight-ounce sweet baby Jesus, but rather Christ enthroned on high. Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you were here in 2021, when we were preaching through the Revelation series, uh, we looked at uh, really a picture of what was going on behind the scenes when, when Christ uh, arrives on the scene. We see Christmas in a very different way in Revelation 12 as we do in the four Gospels. And so I want to read Revelation 12 to you, and then we're going to dive into our primary text. Um, If you get curious about something we read in here, because this is Christmas, but it's actually bigger than Christmas, uh, I've got a 50-minute sermon on it called A Different Kind of Christmas that I preached in 2021. You can go check that out if you want. Uh, I'm just gonna read through it. I'll make some comment at the end, but, but it's not really my point this morning. My point is just to show you the kind of violence in the heavenlies that's occurring at the coming of sweet baby Jesus. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Then his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman. Who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God in his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. I've always loved that little sentence. And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of its mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood by the sand of the sea. Now, it's important to note that in apocalyptic literature, uh, he's not saying like there's this actual dragon. He's, He's provoking our imaginations to understand that behind the scenes, you and I are caught up in this, cosmic war, that that you and I are caught up in something that's beyond what we can see and smell and touch and taste, and that the coming of Jesus is consistently thwarting the work of the enemy, both against God and against his people, and and that what's going on on that silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, is Christ has shown up on the scene in such a way that the work of the enemy has been conquered uh, once and for all. And that spiritual oppression and sin and death are on their heels and the victory of Christ is being given to his people insomuch that the fury of the dragon, knowing his time is short, continually gets thwarted by the power of Jesus' victory. That, that's what we see happening on that silent night, holy night, when all is calm and all is bright. That's what's going on when that sweet little head is resting on Mary's lap sleeping. That, that's what's going on when the Magi show up to visit. That, that's what's going on in the incarnation of the eternal Son of God in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And, and I, I just want to press that our experience of peace in a broken and fallen world, it doesn't come about by sweet baby Jesus, it comes about by mighty King Jesus enthroned forever. Uh, Our confidence to not get swept away in sorrow, brokenness, jadedness, anger, or despair, despite what we're seeing around us, is rooted in Christ victoriously enthroned over all things. So even as we celebrate rightly, right, like even the video we we just showed before I walk out, it's just like, Little children and a fireplace and like ding, 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 ding. It's just sweet. It just makes your soul feel good. And then it, it's good and right. Even though those poor kids, I think it was 92 that day when we filmed that. I mean, those poor kids are sweating. It wasn't because they were nervous about reading. It was because we were making it look like Christmas. We live in Texas. Um, and, and it's like this sweet thing that there is some sweetness to it, but our peace comes from the back edge of that peacefulness and that that peace was one by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and Christ enthroned on high. And you'll see that in every Christmas text you go to. You'll be hard-pressed to not see it in these texts. In fact, let's go to the most Christmassy of all Christmas texts in Isaiah 9 this morning. Isaiah 9 says this in verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, I want to stop because right out of the gate, the prophet Isaiah is saying, hey, a son will be given, a child will come, and and, and on his shoulder, singular, rest the governments of the world, and he will be called, and he gives him titles, Wonderful Counselor. Now, this is an interesting kind of... uh, Word, it's a two words put together in Hebrew. And, and the first word carries with it this idea of like something wonderful or extraordinary or miraculous. And then the second word is the second word, counsel. And, and, and you and I can be rooted in the peace of King Jesus because King Jesus gives to those who follow him, according to this passage, wonderful counsel, miraculous counsel counsel that the creator of the universe has not left us to our own devices to navigate and figure out the complexities of life in a fallen world. He gives counsel that's miraculous. And if we had a testimony, Mike, here, I I bet you hundreds of you who have followed Christ seriously for decades could say, when I trusted his counsel, it ended up being miraculous. Even when At the time, it seemed to confront what I could see and know and understand myself. To follow Christ as king and to heed his counsel is to repeatedly declare he is a wonderful counselor. He gives good counsel in his word, in his presence, in his spirit, in the history of his church, through the community of his saints. He counsels us to life and life Evermore. He is a wonderful counselor. And then he goes on to say, not only is he a wonderful counselor, and I want to lean on that just for a second, like, because I think for some of you, you're very smart, educated, successful people, and life's just not working. And it's not because you're dumb, it's just not working because you are receiving and implementing counsel from someone. You you are not an island untouched by the plausibility structures of our day. You are receiving and implementing counsel, hopefully towards the fullness of life. But the text is going to say, no, 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 there, there's one... Wonderful counselor, one who's outside of time, one who is the creator of all, one one who makes decrees and whispers into ears and conforms hearts to the pattern of his purposes. And that ends up being miraculous over and over and over and over again. And he says, he moves on from wonderful counselor to this next title, mighty God. And this Um, This can be translated God is mighty or, and this isn't very popular in 2023 because we got to sentimentalize Jesus. Jesus can't ever be offensive or mean to anybody. It it can also be absolutely translated God is a mighty warrior. Like the God of the Bible acts violently towards his enemies. And it's important to note that his enemies, according to the scriptures, are not flesh and blood but principalities and powers in this present darkness. And I know we're way too enlightened to believe in all of this, but there are dark spiritual forces at work in the world, and God not only hates them, but he seeks to destroy them and give us victory over them and give us his victory even as we continue to combat them in their short amount of time. Then when we read in Revelation that the dragon's tail knocked a third of the stars out of the skies, you're looking at principalities, spiritual beings knocked down to earth, making war uh, against God. And, and he hates them and he seeks to destroy them. And in the coming of Christ, he has gained victory over all of them so that even their work now actually serves the purposes of God. Like how thorough is the victory of Christ that even as the enemy seeks to destroy us, those things become trophies of God's grace and and serve God's plan to seek and save the lost. It's, It's profound, his victory. So let me give you some of these verses. This is Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Psalm 24, 8, who is this king of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle? Exodus 15, 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 25, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. And he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The predominant atonement theory given to the church in the first three centuries was that of Christus Victor. Where the atonement theory that most of us know about is that Christ has died for our sins. And he has forgiven our sins by his blood. And that, that's perfect. He absorbed God's wrath towards those who would believe that's penal substitutionary atonement that's true and right and good and should be marvelled at but the first 3 centuries what's heralded is the victory of Christ over spiritual oppression sin and death the victory of Christ over principalities and powers and the victory of Christ for you and me handed to us in his resurrection and reign i love this is from, I've, I think this is the third time I've used this quote, and if you're gonna stay here, I, I we probably got 10 more in us, all right? Um, this is from Michael Bird. He's got a systematic theology, and in his, um, in his chapter on Christus Victor, th- there was this quote, and I love it. Satan's force is spent. His worst was no match for the best of the Son of God. The fatal wound of Jesus deals a fatal blow to death It's my my favorite sentence in the book. The powers of this present darkness shiver as the looming tsunami of the kingdom of God draws ever nearer. This is Paul's atonement theology. This is the victory of God. So where does our peace come from? How, How can I rest in a world that seems like there's a lot of chaos? Well, first and foremost, I've not been left to my own devices. I have wonderful counsel, miraculous, supernatural counsel. I'm not stuck trying to figure it out. I've got the word, I've got the spirit's presence, I've got the community of saints. Uh, I've got like I've got wonderful miraculous counsel and then like what 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 should I be afraid of? If Christ's Victory is secure. Like, where do I need to take matters into my own hands? Where, where do I, like, like, I am in the hands of Christ, and, and he is not just feathered hair, shiny-faced Jesus. If you remember in 21, like, when he returns, it's like tattoo on a thigh, fire in the eye, sword coming out of the mouth, and everything that's not holy being melted in front of him. This is our defender. This is our mighty God. We rest under his protection and provision. And then he moves on and calls him. And this is unique in the Old Testament, specifically unique in, um, yeah, really, the the whole Old Testament canon. He calls him um, our everlasting father or eternal father. It is very uncommon in the Old Testament for God to be called our Father. It's more common in the New Testament, but it's not very common in the Old Testament. I want to tell you why. Let me move my Bible over here because it's complete conjecture. In the ancient Near East, it was not uncommon for gods to sleep with women, earthly human women, and and give birth to super offspring. If you remember Greek mythology, if you remember this was kind of a common story and, and wanting to be separate than, different than, that Those ideas in the ancient Near East, they, they wouldn't even say God's name, right? They, they wouldn't even say hey, Yahweh. They, they, would, they, they would call him the, the Lord, Adonai. And, and so he, this is a very rare idea that he is our eternal father or everlasting father. Now, by the time this is fleshed out in the coming of Jesus and his ascension, you, you get these two words put together frequently in the New Testament, Abba, Father, so Abba, connoting um, intimacy, and, and some of you do this. Like you, you make us uncomfortable when we're praying with you. and You're like Daddy, Papa God, and it's in the text. So I can't tell you to not do it, but it just is. Just makes some of us uncomfortable, right? Daddy God's just weird, but it's fine. You, you do you. You feel you just pray to Daddy God all you want, um, but but it's like Abba, Daddy. Father. It's intimate. But but then it's always placed with the other word, like, Abba, Father. And that Father's like, my dad can kick the trash out of your dad. Yeah. Right? Like, like my, my dad's a black belt in jiu-jitsu. It's that kind of thing, right? It's like, uh, Abba, Father. It's like intimacy, welcome, cry on my shoulder, kick the trash out of anyone messing with his babies. That that's the picture. And Isaiah saying, in the coming of Jesus, we have an everlasting, eternal Father. We have an eternal Abba Father. We have an eternal shoulder to cry on. And we have an eternal defender of our soul. And that's where our peace comes from. Peace comes from I have a place to go with weariness, with anger, with I have a Father to go to and say I don't get this. And then I have one who wars for my good in the unseen realm. And, and then the last phrase here is this phrase of prince of peace. That Christ's reign and rule. He is the prince of peace. He is overpowering and establishing peace over three primary things. Spiritual oppression, sin, and death. The peace of Christ's reign replaces The frenetic violence of spiritual oppression, the twistedness of spiritual oppression with soul-level peace conquers sin once and for all. There is no sin with more power than the cross of Christ. It's why you keep seeing these clowns in the Bible be used in profound and powerful ways so we wouldn't get confused about our own clownness in this day and age. If he can use these guys, he can certainly use us. I don't know if you've ever read the Bible like that. Like, I don't have to. You can't find a guy. Maybe, Daniel, maybe. Like, like it is an inconsistent train wreck of humanity being used profoundly by God, and that should make us feel welcome in this game. Right? Like, Abraham can't ever figure out how to be obedient. It's just like two steps forward and trips and falls backwards. I mean, the guy just can't figure it out. He's the father. Many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Right? right? That was a church joke for those of you who hadn't grown up in church. That was a church joke. I'm sorry. I don't do a lot of those. And so here we have the prince of peace. And then the text goes on to describe his reign. We see in the reign of Christ a limitless expansion of his influence and the creation of peace with no end. Now, I want to make an argument. Um, because I think you can look around, even within evangelicalism, and you can see, well, okay. Like, okay, it does seem like the, the peace of God has an end, and the peace of God hasn't certainly continued to expand in every and any direction. One, I would, I would want to try to push you a little bit and go, actually, 2.38 billion Christians worldwide, it's, it's spreading in some significant directions. And, but, but here's my argument. Where men and women wholeheartedly surrender to Christ as king, peace is established and grows in more and more visible ways. Where men and women are half-hearted or loyal to two kingdoms or have joined God's enemies, then violence, death, destruction, and the devolution of human flourishing always occurs. And so although Christ has come and his victory is sure, there is a there is a crash coming where all of reality slams into his throne and is rightly and justly judged by Christ enthroned. And, and all of us now have the opportunity to say yes to this king who provides wonderful. Counselor who overcomes spiritual oppression, sin, and death, whose peace will reign in our hearts forevermore. But one must come under his reign and rule and not rebel against him and then question why his peace isn't reigning. You cannot hedge your bets here. It's not the way this works. Loyalty to kings don't work that way. I'm kind of loyal to you, isn't submission to Christ enthroned. Now, I appreciate that, but I've got my own views on sexuality. It's not coming under the throne of Christ. It's actually joining with his enemies while you in lip service create a different version of him than the one that the scriptures unpack for us. The peace of Christ reigns, rules, and spreads where humanity gladly comes under his rule and walks in his counsel. Kings don't throw out suggestions. They reign, they rule, they command. They they never like, when you get a chance. (laughs) It's not how kings rule. And if kings ruled that way, we wouldn't want to follow them. Too squishy. Too squishy. He moves on to say that his reign will be on the throne of David, um, this is talking about the Davidic covenant that, that's tied to a series of covenants. And, and to shrink the covenants down in a way that I think are, are maybe the, the best way to grab hold of them is the covenants are God's action in the world to, to redeem all that was broken in the fall. And, and so Christ is the fulfillment of the plans of God to make all things new. That that's when He's going to sit on the throne of David. This is a reference to uh, that. This is the one who fixes all things and will make all things new. And then He moves on to talk about how He's going to rule. He's going to rule with, according to the passage, justice and righteousness. And I don't think this is. Um, I don't think this is speaking to kind of the. Um, Maybe silly ways we've perverted this word in 2023, and some serious, you know, some silly ideas of justice. That this is biblical justice—the God who sees and knows everything down to the motivation—and He will judge based on justice and righteousness. Which again brings me a lot of peace. I don't, I don't have to make war against other human beings. I, I can fight ideologies and ideas. But, but he will judge with justice, with righteousness. He and he alone is perfect and able. I'm not. Gosh, I'm, I'm a terrible judge. And then he ends with, and he will reign forever. I, I love this. If you, if you read through the Bible, like cover to cover, and, and you look at human history, the, the rhythm is something like this. Moral upright, strong leaders lead and humanity flourishes and they're almost always replaced by some immoral, manipulative, violent man or woman and it all spirals out of control and then one arises and, one, and there's this kind of ebb and flow to history like where there's incompetence and immorality in seats of power. Really bad things happen to people, mainly women and children. And when there are moral, upright people in seats of power, then humanity tends to flourish. Well, the reign of Christ isn't like that. The reign of Christ is forever. That's the argument. It's just like, hey, the coming of Christ isn't one of those. It is one that is now up and to the right for all of eternity. In fact, the Apostle Paul would argue in the epistle to the Ephesians that it will take the coming ages for us to understand his goodness and his grace and his beauty. That You'll need millennia on millennia on millennia into the eternity to grasp just how good he is and powerful he is and lovely he is and beautiful he is. That's a beautiful promise. And, And this is where we find our peace. And then I love how this passage ends it just ends like this: that the zeal of the Lord of Hosts will do this. That that means that like God's not passive in this; He's actually pretty pumped about His plan. Like Christ has come, victory has been had, the enemy's on its heels, the people of God have been empowered by the Holy Spirit and the zeal of the Lord of hosts has done this. He's not indifferent, he's on the edge of his enthroned seat and he's eager to see all things be made new and we're a year closer, a week closer, and 50 minutes closer than we were when we started. And this is where the Christian finds his or her peace. I have not been abandoned. I I am not flanked on both sides of me in this broken world, but by sweet little baby Jesus, the enthroned king of reality, where there is no greater power, no greater authority, nothing to stay his hand, said he is for me, not against me. He has made a way. He has granted counsel. He will defend me at every turn. He will judge in righteousness. He will reign forever. We lift our eyes to that in this season. Here's how I thought we could end. As I was studying this uh, a couple of weeks ago, I I kept finding myself singing, um, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And, and then as I, you know, I, I started thinking about the words of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it struck me that they kind of lay on Isaiah 9 a little bit. Uh, like in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which is a p- very prayerful song. It's an angsty song. And the prayer starts like, hey, come and ransom. Help us. Ransom. We're held captive by spiritual oppression, sin, and death. Ransom captive Israel. We are Israel. Ransom us. Save us. There's a prayer that, 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 that he would come and in his peace heal our division. There are all of these prayers that line up beautifully to this passage. And so what I've asked um, the worship team to do this morning is just sing over us, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And here's how I would encourage you. I would encourage you to, um, one, sit under it. But let them sing over you. It's just Sharon has a stunning voice. So it's, you're going to just be blessed. But then consider where you need the reign and rule of your life. Where you may be half-hearted. Where you got one foot in this kingdom and this one in this. Where might you need to confess and move towards him? Where is life simply not working because you're bucking his counsel, his rule and reign? Where might we move towards the one that has moved towards us in love? Father, I bless these men and women in the name of Jesus. Thank you your mercy and grace and kindness to us. And so we we do agree with the saints across time. O come, O come, Emmanuel.